The Big Light presents Hello, I'm Sean McDonald. You're listening to Blethered, and I'm joined once again by Matt Morgan. If you haven't heard it already, Matt and I recorded an episode back in February and he talked about his life and career, including the unconventional route that he took into the entertainment industry. In this episode, we discuss current projects, an insight into the dynamic of working with Russell Brand, and Matt's personal perception of fame and how it serves different people in different ways. Oh, and there's the story of how Matt tricked Noel Gallagher into believing that Morrissey had died. If you enjoy listening to Matt Morgan on Blether, there's just under an hour of additional audio available on the Blether Patreon page, and you'll find a link for that in the episode notes. The majority of the additional audio is coronavirus chat and our thoughts on how the government have acted up until the date of recording, but I decided to take it out of the main episode because we don't need to keep hearing about it. If you enjoy listening, why not pass it on to somebody who you think might enjoy it as well? Cheers. Non-corona chat, because we have thing made that. But I think we've given a bit of a positive slant. But Mr. Winner started a few weeks back. I think it started on the 25th of March. Uh, I've, I've enjoyed what I've seen so far. Um, how has it been received overall? I've got a few very specific questions, but I'll let you tell me first. Um, I think the reception, like... It's weird because you like so we work we made that show in 2018. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that right? 2018, yeah, and it was all delivered and everything. And so then it went to because it was BBC One originally, and they moved it to BBC Two, and then there was I don't know how scheduling works on TV, but it basically got pushed back and back. And so by the time mm-hmm. it was actually on telly, it was like, oh yeah, I hadn't watched it for ages. But um, what it is is a family comedy which is designed and you know very specifically to be pre-watershed like maybe 7:30 on a sunday night tea time show that kids can watch uh, the whole family mm-hmm. can watch and it's like yeah it's got the dna of like mr bean and some others do have them and stuff like that in it but like i've tried to make it more sort of have a normal sitcom story to it but um it goes out at 10 p.m. because it's kind of a, uh, what is it? It's, it? Basically, when they put out a new show, it's got to get a certain percentage of the slot average for that time. So if you put out a new show at 7.30, unless Peter Kay's in it or someone that's just going to you know, pull a crowd, then yeah. it will never equal you know, the soaps or whatever's on the other side. So it's a, it's a tactical move to put it out at 10 p.m. But the problem is because it was made for 7 p.m., it looks a bit weird at 10 p.m. because you sort of think, what's this, like CBBC? Well, it just seems <laughs> jarring. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. Um, so, no, but it's had, I mean, like a bit of press that was sort of middling to positive. And then, uh, and they only ever review the first episode. Um, 
Sorry, my fridge has just started making a noise. Uh, they only ever review the first episode, and the, the but the Twitter, which normally is like brutal, you have to like fucking brace yourself before you look on Twitter because mm-hmm. everyone's just like, oh, this what's this shit? Massively positive because I think it helps that the country's in a sort of terrifying pandemic because it's such easy watching. Yeah, it's, a, it's like a relief. One of the things that you'd said, I think maybe at the press junket that you did, that you wanted something to be, that was funny even with the volume down. And I yeah. think that's definitely been achieved because like the first episode where the, you know, he gets the acupuncture needle stuck in him and then the fire alarm goes yeah. off. And yeah. I found myself kind of just like shoulders going laughing because it's it's like this Mr. Bean sort of physical slapstick yeah. comedy. Um, yeah, I did think... Yeah, I did. I did um, keep that in mind from the beginning. I was like, "Oh, this should be funny with no audio, right?" And then mm-hmm. when reality bites and you need to set up the story and do stuff, you do need some audio. But um, and it wasn't just a completely cynical ploy to like sell it abroad or something, which is a lot. Uh, you know, like Mr. Bean just sells is massive in other countries because yeah. you don't need to, there doesn't need translating. It's, it's just like we get it, but. I, I genuinely think that like the physical moments in things, the, f- the actual physical stuff, if it's funny, then you can't not laugh at it. So you get a bigger laugh mm-hmm. than any sort of wordplay or like character stuff. Like, you know, like the office, the bit you actually see, or I do is the dance that he does. And that's like, it doesn't matter how many clever lines and character <laughs> looks camera and stuff. The, the stupid dance is just ridiculous. And, it is, you know, purely a physical comedy thing. So, um, yeah. but uh, yeah, we I watched. Um, I mean, I always loved Lauren Hardy and stuff, but I went back like Buster Keaton, Lauren Hardy, Norman Wisdom, um, God, loads of stuff, physical comedy and like slapstick. And in the first episode, there's a piano because there was. I mean, pianos come up a lot because they're heavy and. I don't know. It's just there's a lot of Laurel and Hardy stuff with pianos. There's a brilliant Steptoe and Son episode where they they're rag and bone men. They collect the, you know like junk, and then they they get called to this really high uh, tower block flat. And um, there's a piano, a grand piano in there, and the, and the guys like, oh, take it away, you can have it. And they're like, fucking yeah. And then um, they can't get it out of the flat. So it's like this beautiful episode where they've got this treasure but they can't get it out of the flats. It's a very simple (laughs) physical idea. And, and so I was thinking about pianos a lot. And so that's why that first episode was, you know, I I was quite, because there was talk of it being like an electric organ. or So I was like, no, no, it's got to be a proper, like upright piano. Um, And yeah, so like it's informed by that older stuff. But I think, I mean, it's very hard to do actually, because it's, You've got, you can't just write and then he does something funny with his hand. Do you know what I mean? You've got to structure Mm -hmm. the the physical jokes, but then you never get enough time to rehearse. And then on the day, like the space isn't exactly as you meant it to be. And, you know, like, so uh, I think if we get to do another series, I'd focus more on like get the location so that we can put tape down in a rehearsal space. We know the actual limitations of the area and do a bit more like rehearsal of that, of the physical moment. Do you know what I mean? Because uh, when we delivered the script, or when I delivered the script, the BBC were like, 
these are these are short because you know they need to be about 32 pages and they're about 26 in some cases and so they think shit when we film this this we're going to be under time you know you can always edit mm-hmm. back down if you're over but you can't pad it out although there are there are a couple of moments where we had to pad things out but like the yeah so the the scripts look weird because it's like then he does this it's all action it's all action description and then there'll be some dialogue and stuff so um i'd like to take it further if we get to do more of like Mm. you know really and also it's the the funniest stuff is the smallest stuff and buster keaton said when you're filming because he directed a lot of his own stuff or and he directed other people's stuff but he he was like with physical comedy, you just need the camera to, to like almost hold a frame and let the f- comedy play out, almost like you're watching it done on a stage. Once you start mm-hmm. cutting around it too much and stuff, you break the spell. So in drama, you, you need those cuts and stuff to, you know, to compel it forward. But with this, it's just the funniest thing is like a camera locked off from a distance and a man with a ladder that keeps sliding back down or whatever. You don't want to turn yeah. around. You just you just want to see that play out, and because then it's like tangible. You understand that he slipped and fell on the floor, and you, and you know what I mean. Like it's um, you you believe it if you can see it actually happening. Otherwise, it stops being funny for some reason. So, yeah, I'd like to take it further and and go a bit more classic with it. It's um, it's so true what you're saying about comedy when it's in that physical form being as funny. Because if one of the first things that came to my mind was. 29 years old and I still piss myself laughing at Tom and Jerry when Tom gets hurt uh, yeah, sorry yeah. Aye, Tom Tom is a cat isn't he I'm trying to remember that just yeah. reminded me have you, have you seen the clip of the uh, the Middle Eastern guy who's in the hotel in London and he phones reception no right so uh, uh, right okay if you've not seen it so basically what happens is he's recording the phone and he phones and he says in this very thick like Indian or Arabic sort of accent and he says uh, you know the cartoon Tom and Jerry and they, they get the receptionist on the other side says yes yes the cartoon Tom and Jerry and he says well my English is not very good but um, Tom he is in my not Jerry he is in my room uh, bring Tom <laughs> with you <laughs> trying to say there's a mouse in my room but I can't remember the words for mouse so oh. yeah you know the cartoon Tom and Jerry Jerry's in my room can you bring Tom and he's like, <laughs> we'll send someone up to fetch the mouse for you. Uh, I'm that surprised. If, if I got that phone call, I would not understand what the, I'd think. He's just mental. I, I knew straight away what he meant. And the receptionist immediately is like, you mean there's a mouse in your room? Okay, we'll send someone up to get it. And saying about the single frame thing, it put me in mind, I don't know why, but the first thing that came to my mind was the, have you seen the guy in Richmond Park? And he's his dog Fenton. Oh yeah, Fenton. I love oh, that. Fuck me, that's yeah. one of the funniest things. Fenton. For any, Jesus Fenton. Christ, Fenton. Jesus Christ. For anyone who's not seen it, go on YouTube and search Fenton. Jesus Christ. And what happens is, and it's just so perfect. Like, why are the things that happen in life funnier than anything that could be written? There's someone oh, who yeah. just happened to be filming a herd of or a flock, or whatever you call them, of deer. And uh, definitely not just, a flock of deer. Not a flock. Yeah. Why do you call them a herd? <laughs> <laughs> a herd of deer. A herd of deer. Yeah, herd. I mean, herd's yeah. way better than flock. Yeah. Um, so you see, deer. like, school, I, I literally just thought a school of deer. So the deer start like running, like fuck, and then you just hear this guy's voice in the distance screaming, "Fountain, 
Fanta, and then his border call, he's chasing his deer. Jesus Christ. Fanta. It's even in like in the background when you see the you can see it play out of like the, the <laughs> herd. It is a herd. The herd sort of oh, it's fucking brilliant. It's cool, isn't it? Like oh, yeah. Jesus Christ in Richmond Park, I think is the name of the video. Yeah, something like that. Go and watch it anyway. It's absolutely hilarious if you haven't seen it. The uh, I did mean to ask you that because the commission had um Mr. Winner was announced in December twenty seventeen after a pilot and it was said it would air in twenty eighteen, so I take it they're just within their rights to just change their mind and say, uh, you know that show you did, fuck you, it'll be out in two years. Well, no, actually, I think 2017 was the pilot and we made that and then they, I don't know when they announced the series, in the they summer did, of... They, they, had, they announced it in December 2017 and they did say it would be out in uh, 2018. Well, then you've got to think, it takes, it takes like six to seven to eight months to write it all then you go into pre-production then you go into production then you go into post-production you know like so yeah that that, i mean it takes a year at least to make a tv show six episodes how how does that come about because you're known obviously a lot for the the radio work that you were doing and for being this funny voice did the bbc come to you and say would you write a sitcom because we think you're funny or do you go to the BBC and say, I would like to write a sitcom? Like what, what's the process there? Well, I mean, I'd done, I wrote a sitcom for channel four a few years ago called the mimic. I did two series of that. So I, and before that I'd written sketches and stuff. So, um, I had done radio stuff with Russell, but I'd re- I was really like trying to be a writer. So, mm. I went to LA because we wrote a film for Adam Sandler. So that was my first, like, I mean, that's a mental thing for your first. And it was probably terrible because I didn't know how to structure a movie at all. So like the literally landed first job working with Adam Sandler. And that was bizarre in Hollywood. But um, then came back and was like, right, I want to, and I knew a few people in telly. I knew Asher Tala, who produced The Office, had a production company and I made a pilot with him. And I just got into it from there. But like, it's not, um, I don't know, it's not that, I didn't really push, I can't remember. I sort of, you just fall into it, do you know what I mean? It's like, there's there was a tipping yeah. point once I'd done the mimic, because I'd, I mean, the first series was five episodes, and then the next series was six. But one, and I mean, that is the real challenge. It's like, if you can deliver as a sole, solo writer, six half hours of telly, that mm. are on time and filmable and not mental. And you can take the notes because obviously there's loads of notes and changes and you have to keep, you know, it's never fucking finished. Even after it's filmed, it's getting notes and being changed in the edit and stuff. So if you can go through that process, you sort of move into a different realm of like people will come to you and say, yeah, can you do this project? You know, because like, I think that is where a lot of writers fall at that hurdle of, I mean, that's a, such a lot of work um, and you're pulling your hair out trying to get this thing to work. And the, the more you do it, the more you you learn tricks and, you know, like you just, and also you've done it before. So there's been so many times where when I was doing Mr. Widow, I was like, had no more ideas and I'd only done four scripts out of six. I was just like, shit, how do I do this? Um, mm. I knew I could tell myself, hang on, you've done this twice. You've done two series of something else where you had to pull ideas out of your ass. So get on with it. Um, so there's a tipping point where you go from begging people to read something for you to, oh yeah, he's in that pool of people now who've actually yeah, done yeah. something and delivered something. So are there any actors or any 
people that you would like to have in? Is there anyone you have in mind or is it just uh, as you go that you would decide upon that? Oh, Mr. Winner or just in general? I suppose in general, but maybe for both. Like if you have a Series 2 um, commissioned or if you do anything else, like do you have any, any ideal people or are you, are you flexible think, in that sense? Well, I think with Mr. Winner, because it's such a, it is Spencer Jones's show in the sense that it's, you know, it's about one character. It's like, it's not an ensemble, yeah. but then in some ways it is because Lucy, his who plays his wife and Sean Williamson, who's brilliant, yeah. obviously, you know, um, EastEnders and extras and stuff is his stepdad. Who's almost, uh, he's always the main victim. He's like got this new son-in-law and he's, uh, an idiot. And he's, he's basically the final victim of this, of everything. So he, and then there's a brilliant guy called Leon who plays his best friend. So like, actually what I would do is you've got your squad there ready. And obviously it all revolves around Spencer, but I would just dig into those characters more. So there's not really, I mean, you obviously always need bit parts and, you know, people, but Mm. I think it's, I think for that show specifically, it's like, no, dig into those characters. Like um, Lucy, who plays his wife, she's a brilliant stand-up comedian as well. And she does a lot of physical stuff um, and character stuff live. But in this, she's basically doing a straight role. So, you know, there's a potential for using her a bit more to do, although like Spencer, the main character is the klutz and she's more, you know, normal, but like, there's no reason she couldn't get drawn into some madness because of him, you know? So like, I think for that, I would really like to use what's there and, and dig into it a bit more. But in general, um, God, there's so many people, but. I mean, a lot of American stuff. I was a big fan of like Arrested Development. I'm a big fan of Zach Galifianakis and Danny McBride. I think there's a lot of good American people. Um, mm-hmm. I think over here who, I mean, I mean, yeah, Vic and Bob, Chris Morris are like the reasons I started doing comedy, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't think of anyone at the moment, but like, I've worked with some great people. There's there's loads of good people, you know. Plenty of opportunities. The uh, yeah. inter- the writing suits you because you're the reluctant hero. Or you, you, you're not always fond of the limelight, so to speak, but you've obviously got a really large fan base. So podcast-wise, have you considered doing any live shows or anything like that? Because punters would love it, and it's a good payday, let's be honest. Yeah, and no, I have. Um but yeah, you're right. I'm naturally, I'm not naturally shy. I'm like, yeah, what's that thing? Introvert, extrovert. Like my mates wouldn't say I'm shy at all. Yeah. But like, I have no real desire to be in the limelight. I don't find that. I don't have that like tap dancing kid thing, but yeah, yeah, you're right. You get loads more money doing stuff. You know, if I did my podcast in a theater, but also like it's different. It's like if I did my podcast in theater and there's a load of people there, but I control the parameters of it and I'm comfortable within it. So that wouldn't feel like, Oh my God, I've got a show tonight. But like <laughs> if, if I um, had to do stand up, and I had to like go up there and go, oh, sir, my wife, uh, wife's are crazy. I'd really. Mother in laws eh? Yeah, exactly. I'd struggle, but that's because in my head, I'm imagining something that basically I can't do. So if, mm. yeah, I totally would do the podcast live. Um, it's a shame. Well, it's, it's 
the podcast has had to change because of the coronavirus situation because I was quite happy interviewing comedians um, yeah. and non-comedians and just talking to people about what they found funny. And that was you know enough to hang a podcast on. Um, but then due to this situation, I can't, I just don't feel like, I mean, this is actually working or right, talking to you for a laptop. It actually feels quite yeah. intimate and normal, like a proper conversation. But I was imagining it being sort of a bit harder to talk to someone I didn't know. I mean, we've met in real life, but like, you know, like talking to someone I didn't know at all and going, so what yeah. was your, f-? and just interviewing them. I, I thought, well, that's not going to really work. But so it's what's ended up being is me drunk at my kitchen table at one in the morning, sometimes talking to myself and more recently just talking to Noel Gallagher, who's, I mean, that's the good thing. You've got people like Noel who's, stuck in his house bored <laughs> so yeah. normally he would probably be be out and about and he wouldn't want to he wouldn't even return my call but at the moment he's phoning me saying when you're doing another podcast so <laughs> i might yeah, just I've, go with I've, it i mean sorry don't you go okay um yeah i might just roll with it and see what happens because it's i mean it's only one a week but you know what it's like you've sort of got a line people up and work out what they need to yeah. do and stuff like that. And uh, my work rate has just dropped. It's plummeted since this all started because not just because I read about it a lot, which is basically, I mean, you need to keep abreast of it. I think you need to like read the news once a day, but I can't, I'm just reading it all the time. So I'm not getting enough work done. And then I don't know what you're like, but like, I just, I'll, sometimes I'm just not in the right frame of mind to do a light-hearted podcast. I'm just not. I'm just thinking. I'm, you know, there was times where like there was bad news and loads of deaths, and, and I was just thinking, what the f- like? How can I? I can't do this. So I think my mum said to me like, "Well, your job is to. That's your job, you know, in in a sense, and that's what people like. You don't. You're actually if you don't do it. There was a week where I just didn't do it. I just thought, fuck that. I don't even know what to say." Mm. And she was like, you should, you know, there's people who rely on you. And then you, you that, is, that, that is that sort of a noble purpose in the sense that even if you're talking absolute bollocks for an hour and it gives people an hour just to chill out and have a laugh, then that is better than just not doing one, sitting at home feeling all doomy and gloomy. So, um, so I'm going to keep doing them as long as people want me to really. I'd say so. I, I've definitely found I've I've had similar feelings, but I think there is a sort of a nobility and just carrying on and creating something because even if there, you know, it, as you say, it's just one hour that it gives people some sort of distraction, like it's needed uh, more than ever, even just to give people yeah. options, just a wee bit of a laugh and a bit of escapism. Uh, and I don't mean it yeah. to be like Liza Minnelli jazz hands, like the show must go on, darling. We're entertainers. But there, yeah. is a, there is an element of responsibility, like to, to well, give I've people some for people who are NHS workers, and they're like, "Oh, thanks for that. I listened to it on my day off, and you know, forgot where I was for a bit and stuff like that." And then you go, yeah. "All right, no, actually, this is you know, yeah, that's pretty amazing because I have no medical knowledge. I, you know, maybe I should be delivering food for old people, but I'm not." I feel a bit guilty about that. I think I missed the boat on that. But like, you know, I don't know. It's, it's something you can do. So if yeah. if it helps people, then that's good. And also it does help me in a way because it's, it's like, 
yeah, having a laugh with Noel, it gives me a break as well, you know. Um, yeah. So, yeah. But I think it's interesting how many things can continue because like normally, if I'd have said in normal times, oh yeah, I want to do the podcast from my house now, it would be the laziest thing. It would be like know. laughable. It would be like, people would be like, fuck off. Like, I don't get in the studio, you fucking idiot. Yeah. But then, to, to go and do a podcast in town, for me, it's like, I mean, this is, I'm lazy in a sense, right? In some ways. Get an Uber to the station, get the train into town, go to the studio, mm. line up the guests, you know, like, you know, it's like trying to get this, uh, someone there at the same time as you and they're yeah. doing it for free generally. So you've got no control, you know, like they'll just go, oh, sorry, can we make it next week? And you're like, oh, I've got no guests now. <laughs> All that stuff gets cut out. It's just like literally text someone and go, can I call you on my podcast? Yeah, mate. So it's like, in a way, it's, it's made things easier. And it's made, I think, you know, beautiful things will grow out of it where people suddenly realise they've got the means of production that you or I have got. You could just, I mean, you don't really need much equipment, do you? And it's like good enough sound. I said to begin with, I was like, nah, I'm a fuck doing these over the, the laptop. And so far, I've only done it with people I know. Like on Thursday, Thursday or Friday, I had Gordon on. Uh, Toby Tarrant was on a couple of days before. And it's everybody that I've done it with uh, that I've spoken to. I've, I, I know them in real life. So it's there's, it's been a bit easier. But even doing this, I'm like, yeah. do you know what? I could quite easily speak to somebody I don't know. And then it makes me think, well, what's to stop me? I've knocked back interviews with people in America because I'm like, nah, I'm not going down that route. Of, cause I thought it would sound terrible, but it sounds great for some of them. I've had a few sound yeah. issues with the, the microphone input, but I think I've got it fixed now. So some of them sounded terrible, but the ones where the microphone has worked, it sounds as if we're together. So it's like, you may as well. I found that with, with the lack of of, uh, I don't know, ability to move. It's forced me to be more creative. It's forced me to, to troubleshoot. It's forced me to even try and be a bit funnier with with what I'm doing because you're, you're limited in, in your options. And I think then it can only help you as an interviewer, as a creator, to to be forced to either adapt and overcome or, you know, die and people forget about you. I probably shouldn't use the word die in this pandemic, but you know what I mean? Like in terms of your... Yeah, I know. Um, no, your podcast could die, but like, you know, yeah, exactly. I fucking hope not. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> no, the, it won't. Though. That's the thing. It's like, uh, but it's interesting that because I presumed you were doing your podcast and talking to people as you normally do, but it does. It is different if you're doing this because there's the loss of intimacy with someone you've not actually met in real life. But then if you think like. Loads of people do their podcasts like this anyway, because if your podcast is about, like, I don't know, something about banking or something, right? And this yeah. is how, you know, this is how it's happening. It's like you're, you're grilling yeah, them for information. It's, it's definitely broken down a few barriers in my mind, and it makes me think what's possible. And now I'm like, right, who else? Who are people that I've spoken to in the past who would be great to have on or who are really famous but have been really hard to nail down? So I'm like, fuck it, yeah. I'm just sending it x and a few emails like, and also they're all bored they're all like desperate for you know like normally it's like oh god there's that thing i've got to do i haven't got time today but now they'll be like biting their hand off yeah, i think I, I think this whole i think the i mean this is a negative but i think it's going to make agrophobics of a lot of people because you know 
you realize how much you can actually get done from your house. <laughs> I, know. And I think I know. we go back to like, I go to meetings. I mean, this is a classic thing, but like this meeting could have been an email, you know, that sort of joke or meme or whatever. And it's so true. Yeah. I've been I, like, if I sometimes I'll go to a meeting at the BBC or like, I don't know, Tiger Aspect or something. And that is in Shepherd's Bush. So I'm going from Kent into London, crossing London, going to West London, going to a meeting. And then, I mean, just in terms of like Greta Thunberg saying to me, like, what the fuck are you doing on two trains, a tube, a bus, Uber or whatever? I mean, that's a lie. It's not that many things. But um, like, it's just mental. I mean, you know, like basically an hour and a half journey to do an hour meeting that nothing gets decided and is just a bit of fluff. And then an hour and a half home, it's like, so you could streamline that now. But that, like I said yeah. before, if I'd have gone, yeah, I'm not coming to the meeting. I'm going to call in on FaceTime. They would have thought, who is this guy? But I think there'll be more of that going on. Can be done. It'll save you money. It'll save you time. It'll ease congestion. Like just phone me. It'll be a lot easier on the phone. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's not like if I'm doing a proper job. I know. I actually said that. I was. I think I said to Gordon, I was like, while there is a um, level of importance to the different aspects of the, the way that we're working within the media and whatever, it does highlight that unless your job cannot stop during a, a global crisis, then it doesn't really fucking matter. It's not really real. It's being created, yeah. but it's not essential. If they could just go, yeah, no, I just... Just, just leave it for a while. Like your job ain't that fucking important in the first place. So yeah, you certainly don't. But who used to think of delivery drivers as as key workers? Do you know what I mean? Like before, they yeah. weren't. They did. They didn't have any sort of uh, respect. I don't think in societies like the machinery of society. The bloke who brought your, you know, the package to the door. Mm. You just sort of thought, oh, like you know. I mean, then they're now, they are key workers. They are like most of, I mean, how hard is it to get food delivery? And when it comes, that person is almost like, you just want to hug him, not that you would. Uh, but no. like they, yeah, I think like, I mean, obviously everyone's going, you know, you realize about nurses, you realize teachers. I mean, so many people have said, fucking hell, imagine being a teacher when they've got their own children one of them at home or two of them at home instead of 30 of other people's children and to keep them all entertained and mm. focused and learning and stuff like that. I mean, like, hopefully, well, everyone, I've always thought this, it's like the, obviously the most important roles are the least paid roles, the nurses and the teachers and stuff like that. And I think that's because those jobs are people with a compulsion to, to help and to, like, if you are, somebody who cares for people you can go into nursing if you don't care about people it's i mean it's not much money in it it's like why would you do it you know so and teaching's the same thing you've got to like you've got you can't just because it's not a financially you know rewarding career then you're doing it because you actually care about it so obviously we don't want to pay them too much so that like evil people start doing those jobs but give them a lot more money for what they do. For for people who are big fans of you and Russell, we had a brief chat about this, but I found this really interesting. So I watched this recently and it was a show called Kerouac on the road. What was it? Oh, fuck. On the road it was called and it was you and Russell driving. Oh, yeah, on from east to west coast across America and a homage to Jack Kerouac who wrote that book. Was the book called On the Road? 
Yeah, yeah. On the road is the name of the book. Yeah. Started in Lowell, Massachusetts, where he was born, and I think he wound up in San Fran. Like, tell yeah. us a wee bit about because it was an entertaining show to watch, and I suppose it was just at the time when when both your stars were kind of rising. Maybe one of the first major mainstream entertainment things you would have done together. Is that correct? Yeah, I've never done. I, well, I suppose we did MTV stuff together, but like. Because we were doing the radio show at the time, the BBC, I think it's BBC Scotland, said um, they had the idea because it was an anniversary of the book, 50th, mm. I don't know. Um, and so, and Russell was like, you know, all over the place at the time. So they put the idea together and then, oh no, because I suppose we were doing the radio show for the BBC. So maybe, I don't know, it was some sort of crossover there, but like, we were going to do the radio show along the way. So I think it took two weeks or three weeks, so two or three radio shows along the way. And yeah, we drove from, I remember Lowell in Massachusetts. He was born there. We started there. Then we went to New York and then we drove, well, I drove straight across to San Francisco. And we, along the way, we saw the, the originals. He wrote this, the book on a continuous piece of paper that he just fed through his typewriter. So that scroll exists and it's in, where was that? I don't know. It was somewhere, but I don't think it was in Lowell. I don't know. Well, but we saw that it. along the way. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. Um, he, yeah, it was like, there's a museum and it's like in a case and it's really fucking long. And it's only like obviously one section of it that you can actually read. The rest of it is just bunched up at the ends. Is that but, um, <laughs> Fictional book, isn't it? But it is really just his. It's largely autobiograph, autobiographical um, about him and his mate sort of just kicking it across America. So you were almost following in his footsteps. Is that the kind of concept of it? Yeah, I think it's um, it is completely real, isn't it? I don't know. It's like it's not fiction, but I think it's sort of like five segments, and it's about his life. He was quite carefree, a bit of an adventurer, maverick, whatever you want to call him. Um, and well, him I and mean, his pal. clearly I've never read the book and neither did Russell. In this fucking documentary, you both act and speak as if you're big fans and you've read his work and it inspires you. Yeah, man, we're going to follow in his footsteps and you didn't have a fucking clue. Like, what about when you don't went to meet what? people who are <laughs> the people who are actually featured in the book and you don't know who the fuck you're talking to? Yeah, no, what, what happened was they sent us both the book and said, you've read it, yeah? And it was like getting closer and closer. Like, yeah, 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 I've read it. And then I remember actually once saying, do you know what? I might read it again then. Yeah, I'll read it again. I hadn't read it at all. I kept trying. I kept starting. And it was so humorless. And it is amazing. But the thing is, like, it changed. It was a, a really groundbreaking idea at the time. Of just Let's just get in a car and just fucking go somewhere and then keep going do you know what i mean like that's like at that time where teenagers you know like in the 50s and 60s it was like you went from school to work and you got married at like 20 and started having kids you know so it's like quite a revolutionary thing but nowadays that's not revolutionary at all that's just getting in a car with your mate but it's beautifully sure. written it's great i'm not in any way like loads of people love the book loads of people have come up to me and gone ah oh, I read, I saw the documentary and I started reading the book. It's amazing, isn't it? And I was just like, yeah. But like, <laughs> I, it, was, it wasn't for me. And um, I didn't wear glasses at the time. And I do think I had a bit of, I thought I had ADHD because I just couldn't read. 
for long. And then I mm. had my eyes tested and I had quite a bad astigmatism in one eye. So I was like, um, then I could, I'd literally pick up a book and be like, oh my God, I'm comfortable reading. I don't need to put it down after 10 minutes feeling really stressed out. So there was a long period of time where I just couldn't. So I kept buying books and then not being able to read them. So that's partly my excuse as well. Um, but I read, you know, there was bits, the bit about this, uh, like fireworks in the sky or whatever the main quote is spinning in infinity up in space or whatever. There was, was like the bits, the main bits, like I read the back. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, and I looked at the picture <laughs> for a long time, the front, but then halfway across America, Russell admitted that he hadn't read it either. So we were both going, arguing in this fucking car that was covered in cameras saying, like, cause we just, we were meeting people who were in, who were from the book. They were real people that featured in the book. Right. <laughs> but they were all old, like just really old people who had known Jack Kerouac. And so yeah. the producer kept saying to us like, you know, the scene where thing and uh, Jack goes, and then his friend and blah, blah, blah. And <laughs> you know that bit. And we were like, yeah, go, well, we're meeting her Dorothy tomorrow. She's, <laughs> She, we're going to her house and you can ask her whatever you want and we're filming it and it's great. And then we both, we had the book with us and we still never, <laughs> we could have probably read it on the trip. But anyway, we were complete, complete idiots. It might have just Boys. been a shit book. Like I did 1984, see so for my English, my higher English, that was like English equivalent as in, in England is the A-levels. And I had to yeah. write something about George Orwell's 1984. My analysis of that is interesting concept, very applicable to today's society. Thought the book was shite. I watched the film, and even that didn't impress me. And I remember my English teacher getting really excited because I chose that. And she was like, Yeah, yeah you know the part with blah, blah, blah. And my only reference was the, what I saw in the film. So I was like, Yeah, yeah, the bit yeah. where he's like shit himself. And she's like, Yeah, yeah what did you think about the imagery at this point? And I was like, I don't know. And I actually just read someone else's. Um, this is kind of fraud, I suppose, but I just read someone else's essay and kind of took the main points like online and just kind of memorized yeah. it and just from there. And I, I passed the exam. So, but yeah, I thought it, I I thought did it was that. I did that with the same book. I did, I did an essay on Brave New World, 1984, and some other um, sci-fi sort of future book and drew, drew comparisons between the three. I thought it was a really good idea. And then just, just, I hit a wall with all the books. I was just like, oh, this is boring. Um, yeah, and they're not. They're brilliant books. And I, I, I've actually, Aldous Huxley, I, re- I, re- I did read that. It's like, I just was an idiot at school. Like, it was just, you know, I quite liked Shakespeare and I quite liked when we dissected books and, you, and you'd read a bit in class and then go, you know, like that. But like anything I had to do, you know, anything where I was trusted to do anything on my own time, I just didn't do it. So, I'd read the back, I'd flick through it. And this is pre-internet. So it's like, I couldn't just go online and you know what I mean? It was like, I don't know. I don't know how I did it, but I did. I used to get really good marks for essays because I just sort of presume stuff. The teacher must have I'm gone. These, these not read these. Sure. I'm quite, I was always really skeptical and like quite cynical in school. So when the teacher would be going, you know, so the, the writer says that the, the curtains were blue. What do we think this represents his inner turmoil? And he's feeling a bit sad. And it's like, fuck off, man. The colours were, the, the curtains were blue. Like, I don't think the author actually thought about it that much. Yeah. Sometimes I just, we're just trying, like, how, who honestly writes a book really 
and every single thing has got some symbolism. Maybe he just liked blue yeah. curtains and he just wanted yeah. to do that. I, I, I remember really that exact exact thing. But then, but when they when there was like William Blake, I really liked the poet, um, and there were like there were things that I found fascinating when because I had a really good English teacher, English literature teacher, and she would. I don't know. She she helped unlock a few things. So I was like, oh, that's what he means. Because she's like, oh, at the time, the church was represented by this and whatever. Like so, and so there was some stuff where you go, oh no, that is actually interesting. But yeah, the bits where they were like, well, the symbolism of a storm that the writer is keeping going through this thing, and that's what. And you think, is he? I don't think he is at this. Point. Like, yeah, they were definitely yeah. looking into it too much. I think they were just trying to teach us to read between the lines a bit and see what, I don't know, but a lot of it was mental. Overblown. I think what part actually ruined it for me as well is we did like the Glass Menagerie, which is set in like, I think it's set in like pure 1920s, 30s Alabama, like Southern States. And our teacher was by her own admission, a failed actress. Uh, so she just used those classes to act out the play. And it was actually something that could probably fit into like a really funny comedy because you'd she'd just really be acting it out and then I'd just be like, nah, I don't have time for your bullshit. Just switch off. But it, it was almost like really uncomfortable as if she was like yeah, acting yeah. for a part and like, I don't know, picturing herself in some other life. To take it back to, you know, speaking about, um, you know, the thing you did with Russell, you also did work together for quite a while um, and even more recently in Radio X. Um, did that start like a year or two ago? Um, when was that? Yeah. So it must have been, I think it was a year last Christmas. So yeah, whatever year. So 2018, moving into 2019, he, uh, we were doing that. I think it was always, uh, whatever I do with Russell, always teeters on a knife edge anyway, really of, of not happening the next week. So he just announced, oh, I'm going to America, so this is the last one. And I was like, oh, okay, all right. Is um, that not, like, who's your mate? Uh, you, you've known each other for such a long time, but does that not fucking piss you off? Because he actually says it in his book that he's forever indebted to you or, or he's forever remorseful for the fact that you'll be working together on something and then he will just pull the plug or he'll be erratic or, or like sort of flaky on it. Like, did you not just get to a point where you're like, right, okay, I can't be asked doing anything with you anymore? No, because because he's erratic or was erratic and flaky. It was like ah, it's like always when things <laughs> yeah, fell yeah. apart. Even if it was because everyone had got sacked, it was like oh, thank fuck for that. <laughs> I don't yeah. have to worry about that. And then they, I wouldn't talk to him for a few months, so we'd just like text or whatever. And then something else would come up. But I've been trying to get him on my podcast, but he's been he was in Australia, he's doing touring, he's doing stuff. I don't know, like I think he will eventually, but. um uh yeah we're still like i still talk to him all the time you know well, not all yeah. the time but we talk and um i just i don't know i don't think there's our sort of careers have diverged really but mm-hmm. um i did enjoy that last bit of radio x we did but he's, he's you know he's so brilliant and his brain is so fast and and obviously yeah. me and him have a really good like that's the shame of it it's like he's we're comedy partners in the sense that, you know, I could sit down with him and just talk and turn it, turn a mic on and it will be funny and we'll get, you know, cause we understand each other really well. So 
I do miss that because it's like there's this playground that I'm not allowed to go to when I'm that sounds awful, sounds like my paedophile. <laughs> there's no, this there's this playground I'm not allowed to go to. It's <laughs> already <laughs> um, if I go back I don't know why I did it, but I ran around the playground, my trousers down. Now he like there's this like, you know, there's let me try again without saying like a nonce. There's a fun and productive relationship that when we're not doing anything, it's like, oh God. And when I see his ridiculous videos where he's in the new Jesus, I just think, oh, if we were on the radio, I could fucking rinse him for that. And yeah. and he's got a good sense of humor about himself, weirdly. Do you know what I mean? Even though he takes himself seriously and that, that stuff, he's, he's always got one foot in the camp of knowing he's ridiculous. So... It, yeah, I one do miss the, that, and I miss the opportunities to take the piss out of it. One of the things I think that because I I regularly go back and and listen to old episodes and old podcasts and stuff because it's just hilarious. But one of the things that makes me really, really barely laugh, and I think other fans would would this would resonate with them that he'll say something funny and he'll be really acting it out, and he'll be doing his voice, and you can tell he's really thinking it, and he's really going for it, and giving his all, and he'll be laughing, like naturally at his own stuff, and then you'll say just one line or something, and he'll like scream with laughter, but you can tell he's sort of just losing control a bit, which then in turn makes the listener just really piss themselves laughing as well. I mean, off the top of my head, I can't even think of anything now, um, but everybody knows what I'm talking about. There's been some funny stuff. I think your periods of partnership yeah. have been pivotal for you both in a sense and my perception is that you both even if it's just comedically become interdependent on each other one's a sort of extravagant flamboyant all, Russell's always very verbose and then you'll just be dry and cutting and that combination with each other is funny as fuck basically is how I would describe it if if you had yeah. to go back to say the start of that journey that time when he said to you oh come work on this thing and there was there was actually nothing if you could go back and speak to yourself at that point would you give yourself any advice or would you say do this differently or be wary of this or would you just say go out and do it and you'll learn what you're supposed to learn yeah I wouldn't give myself any advice because I mean Russell was really good because he was very supportive he's like no you're good enough you're funny you can do it like just sit there and just be you and just don't worry I'll I'll take all the stress out of it I'll um, you know, the sort of performance dress because I would never have done anything like that. I'm, uh, like I said, I'm sort of shy in that way. Um, so really grateful to him. And then, uh, but I listened back to it. I've honestly never listened to a show, but I've heard clips of it because people have made sort of compilations and stuff. And a mate of mine summarized it. He said, oh, I listened to your show and it sounded like this. <laughs> And basically, yeah, what is is what I heard. It's just like, yeah. well, the thing is, it's like a sitcom, isn't it? It's like a mad flamboyant person and then a more sort of basic person going, you're ridiculous. And then that, that relationship ran and run. You know? exactly. But it was great as well because it, it was like Russell was going through mad, you know, like fame, suddenly getting famous whilst we were, doing it you know he was we were on six music yeah. and i think i don't know there was a turning point where he was linked to kate moss and then it was suddenly hollywood films and so all the way through it the radio show was there and so it was like he was on a mad journey you know so it was 
I think probably quite fascinating to listen to in that sense. Because mm. Russell was, has said as well about the, the impact of fame and he thought it was everything that he ever wanted and strived for. And when it came, he felt even more disconnected and sort of disassociated, which is obviously what has propelled him down the path that he's in now, wearing those yoga trousers and, and having long hair and, yeah. and doing the sort of cruise in his podcast, which is obviously very... Yeah. Very connected to the, the, I suppose, a more spiritual level of expression. But the whole fame conversation or, or topic is one that that does fascinate me and interest me. And I'm interested to hear the perspective of people who are connected to it from different levels or different depths. And I spoke to Gordon about the concept and the misconceptions of fame with regards to importance, authenticity, and your everyday existence, or even the benefits that you that you get as opposed to the benefits people think you get. Do you have any thought? Is it something you ever think about or consider? Because obviously you've seen it, as I say, from obviously best mates with Noel, with Russell, seen it with, with Gordon's connection to it. I mean, is it anything I you mean, ever I've think seen, about? Yeah, I've seen it, I've been around it, and I have just think I haven't seen the benefit of it apart from money. Honestly, it's mm. like, like when you hear how much money, oh, I'm doing this thing, how much are you getting for that? Fucking hell. Like, that money is you can't get that money in normal life without fame so you know but then it's not it depends when you're on the way up you're doing things you know you're they're doing you a favor to put you in this or that but then when you reach the tipping point where you go over and it's like you are the selling point so you are the money that's where the money is so things you know or like russell got that big book advances because he wrote the first book and then that's such a bestseller that, you know, like, and you sort of go, oh, yeah, that would be awesome, like the money and the, um, but I mean, when I was younger, probably like, nah, not even the girls or the sort of sex side of it, that, that, because you'd always just think they're only doing this because I'm famous. Like, and, and mm-hmm. I think you'd end up, like Russell says, you know, like you end up pretty lonely because it's kind of a one way transaction in terms of, what's going on there. So like, yeah, financially I've always thought, fucking hell, that'd be good. But I never saw fame as anything other than a sort of symptom of something that you would, you know, it's like a side product really. But like people can do, fa- like Russell says, oh, fame's awful. And, you know, I I thought this would make me happy being a Hollywood movie star with loads of money and Katy Perry as my wife and all that sort of stuff. And I think, I've probably said this to him. It's not the fame or the wife or the money or the thing that's not good enough or not what you thought it would be. It's you. It's the person. It's like that thing of no matter where you go, you're always there. Or, you know, like you could go and find yourself in India, but you're still you with all your problems and neuroses and memories and things that make you cringe that you've done in your life and all that stuff. So, you're dragging all that with you. So to think oh, I'm going to go to India and find myself and everything's going to be all right, whatever your mission is in life to go and do. It's like, if you're not, if you're flawed and unhappy, then you're going to be flawed and unhappy. Even if you're sat on a pile of gold with 200 women and the fucking helicopter or whatever, you know, it's like, it's good because like look at Noel Gallagher. He's, he's quite, he's not unhappy. He would never go, like he would literally say, fame's the fucking best thing in the world. I love it. Money yeah. and fame, you know. It's like, it's who you are and how you get there. And I think 
especially with Noel, he's got he's got a talent where you know put him in a room with an acoustic guitar, and he might come out of that room with a song that changes people's lives literally and becomes their first dance at their wedding, and he might have been in that room for an hour or whatever. So he's got this magical well inside him of art and beauty and whatever. So his version of fame is that. That's where it's coming from. It's the byproduct of that thing that he does, right? So when Russell was getting famous and, you know, he's doing comedy, which, yeah, his brain is amazing. He's comedic and funny and stuff like that. But he was also doing TV shows he didn't really want to do and having his hair all silly and, like, he was in a whirlwind of chaos. And so the fame was coming from that. So it's like it's arriving a different way and you're also receiving it a different way. So I don't think you could ever say, you know, football made me a millionaire, but I wasn't happy, says Paul Gascoigne. But, like, Gary Lineker wouldn't say, I'm well out of my depth talking about football, by the way, so this is pretty... Probably the analogy is very fitting. It's appropriate, so... Yeah, so, um, but then I think Russell's like, he's happier now. He's got, you know, he's married, he's got two children, he's got a simpler life, and he's got animals, and so that's kind of what he always needed. And so he just had to go on a longer journey than most people. But, like, yeah, I mean, I'd love to be, if if I wrote a book, right, and it was amazing and it changed with like, my night, like that book being famous, I'd love, but mm. not me, the actual person who is me, because that's the, the mad thing about um, celebrity more than fame. It's like, what's that saying? Celebrity is a mask that eats into the face. It's like mm. you, you are the product that you're selling. And so you can't escape when that, when people get yeah. bored of that product or you fuck up in some way, then you are, Russell Brand or Lily Allen or Kanye West or whoever you you know like so when you go home and look in the mirror you go oh shit that's me who you know like that's the product that's the you're so exposed I don't know I don't mm-hmm. know it's like uh, it doesn't appeal to me I it's- I forget because I've only done radio really apart from like that bits of telly I forget that people know and only very it's very rare and it's quite a niche. I'm quite a niche person to know who I am, but like when I'm on the tube and someone recognizes me and they're looking at me and I think I, I totally forget there's any other reason they could know me. I, I literally think that person, why is that person fucking looking at me? And then <laughs> they'll come over. This guy did it recently and he was like, he came over and just stood there and started talking. I had my headphones and I, took, I literally thought He's, this is a fight. And I must've looked like, cause I was thinking, there's, this bloke's been staring at me. He's come, he looked mental and had a huge beard and I, he just looked a bit mad, right? He'd been staring at me for ages and trying to catch my eye and then sort of, he looked too intense. Then he came over and stood right next to me in a mad bit of personal space intrusion. And I was listening to like really heavy metal and he was, I don't know, he was just, I was in the wrong frame of mind. So I literally thought, like this is a mugging or a fight or something. So I must have given him the most mental look of like, the fuck mm. do you want sort of thing. Took my headphones out, just waiting for him to throw a punch. And he was like, Matt, Matt, oh man, I just want to say I love the radio show. And it was like, in that moment, I totally forgot 
I don't know why I was just in the wrong for I just thought I was in a movie where someone kills me and I had to whatever, <laughs> have a mad fight on the shoe. And so I then had to like pull back through about 10 layers of narrative that I'd created. When <laughs> this guy, so I was sort of, oh yeah, oh, thanks, mate. Oh. Um, thanks for listening. So if you were... If you were that man, he did look a bit mental, though. He has to admit that if, if he knows who he is. <laughs> uh, if you were that man, I apologise, but you'll know who you are because you would have thought, oh, never meet your heroes because he looked like he wanted to kill me. <laughs> Amazing. It must be really strange. I mean, I suppose, as you say, if, if you're used to that, then, then you're probably always going to be in that thing. I wonder if then there probably has been a lot of embarrassing incidents when I think Knowles actually spoke about one where he said someone came over I think him and Gordon were out somewhere and he's telling stories and he's shouting and that and this guy came over and they thought he, he was in the mindset he was about to go, yeah, there you go, mate. Um, what was that? Your first concert was Nebworth for you love Wonderwall? There's an autograph, yeah. fuck off. The guy came over and yeah. said, would you do me a favour and stop, stop swearing? My mother's over there. And he's like, oh, right, okay. Because he's just always <laughs> expecting that and expecting yeah, that yeah, interaction yeah. to be from that that aspect. As you say, like, it's true if, if maybe Russell's saying, you know, I thought I wanted fame because I was unhappy. I got fame and I was unhappy. Actually, I've never thought about it, but the very obvious answer is, well, then the, the, the internal, whatever's going on in there is something that you have to deal with. That's what's making you unhappy. And I, I did actually want to yeah. ask about no, like, what is it that makes him so normal? Is it because you said he became famous at 27 and he'd already developed his character and his personality and he's there? Yeah, I think that's a, a big help. But the thing is as well, you've got to think, there's right with alcoholics or drug addicts, right? I didn't know this. I learned this from Russell. He's he did a podcast with a bunch of addicts, right? And so I've always thought, yeah, I like a drink and whatever, and but I'll like, but I can't imagine doing it every day or needing it or do you know what I mean? Like, so I just didn't get it, and I just thought, what is an alcoholic? Like, what happens to them that makes them whatever? But this podcast, they all said, and there was drug addicts, alcoholics, sex addicts, whatever, different addictions. And they all said they do it to feel normal. They don't do it to feel like, you might go, oh, I, I, you know when you're sort of feeling good and you think, I'll go to the pub, it's a sunny day, I'll have two beers or whatever. They're not doing that. They're going, there's something missing and they're at deficit at, in normal, you know, like normal life, there's something missing. And so they do it to fill that last bit up, to feel normal. Right. So if you imagine you're going around, you know, like if you're really hungover, you imagine that, you know, that's there's something missing. You feel a bit broken. It's a bit, ugh, like there's something not quite right. If, you know, a drink made you feel normal, right? That's a bad analogy because I've said hungover. But I mean, like if, if there was something wrong with you and but you were just a bit you know, off. Yeah. yeah. And so, so that was interesting because I was like, oh, right, okay, so that's why, because you just don't feel normal. And the only way you feel normal is by taking drugs, going shopping, because some people are addicted to like, you know, buying stuff or whatever. And so then you feel normal. And then you get, then you, of course you're going to be addicted because who doesn't want to feel normal, you know? So like, I think with fame, if you're, if you need that love from strangers or you need that, affirmation or you need like whatever it is you need you need people or the world to tell you you're all right or you're special or whatever then if you if that is a need that is missing from you then fame will you'll a crave it 
And then you'll be addicted to it because you can't function without it because there's this thing missing. And then you'll, when it goes away or you blow it or you, whatever, you're going to end up saying, oh, phone's awful, it's horrible, it stole everything from me or whatever, you know. Like, Whereas if you are the person who's going, hey, it's a sunny day, I feel good, I'm going to go and have two drinks. That's what Noel Gallagher's like, I think. So he's like, he's happy. He was, he's a happy man. He'd be fine if everything, I think if he lost everything, so he could still watch the football and, and play yeah. his guitar and write songs, he'd be happy because he's, he's got simple needs, really. He I hasn't watched got a, a deeper... Yeah, a deeper well of needs. Like I watched uh, Supersonic again the other day because it's on Netflix. Yeah. And he was speaking, like, I was a roadie. I was, I was I'd seen parts of the world. He's like, I was fairly happy. I didn't have much money, but, you know, life was all right. And I suppose if you say, if that's your starting point, and if it then fame or fortune just becomes a supplementary thing to an already happy and content existence, then, as you say, it's just going to be, a, u- a useful tool to get stuff or or, or um, yeah. preference or privilege or whatever. Um, a, a, a lesson to anybody who is pursuing that type of thing that you have to first take care of, take care of your own garden before you venture out into into the bigger world yeah. in that sense. I think I thought in terms of my career, I'd probably be way better off and further on if I was a bit more needy of fame and or, or success or whatever, like, because I would have, milked every contact and i would have you know like pushed myself in you know when people hustle and stuff like that and i never did any of that and so like and that's not because i'm saying it's wrong i i should have done that a bit more do you know i mean i I could have i could have done that a bit more because i always thought oh no you don't you don't want to do that i don't want to i don't want to be a burden i don't want to be annoying and you know and actually you realize that people don't find that annoying because that's what everyone does. And that's what, how people get successful. And they, you know, you have to hustle. So like, um, yeah, I think you can go the other way. I was probably a bit too, you know, content in a sort of like, Oh, I'm all right. I've got 20 quid in my pocket. Mm. But then again, what a way to to be, to be content. You know, I think everything that everybody does or strives for in life, whether they realize it or not, is to reach a base level of contentment, contentment and and fulfillment. And if you reach that easily, I always say you're the luckiest person on earth. Like I can make comparisons where often you'll hear people speak disparagingly or unkindly about people who uh, leave school, get a job in a local area, um, they marry, they settle down and the highlight of their week and what they're really happy with is a Chinese and they say, oh, that sounds like hell to me. And I say, yeah, okay, it doesn't sound really exciting to me either. However, have you ever thought that how wonderful it must be to to be able to reach that contentment in such a, an easy way? It, 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 you know, your happiness is not really comparable to somebody else's because we all have these instincts that make us want different things and some of us have to travel a wee bit further. And I always think I would love to be that person who was just so fulfilled and so happy and and didn't have a care in the world that easily. I've got, I'm like that, but then there's this creative urge, which is like, if I'm not writing, then I'm making something or painting something or more recently strumming an acoustic guitar because I'm in lockdown and sort of got a prison guitar type thing. But like, I've got to be doing something or like, also I've got like, a pretty rich imagination. So if I'm like thinking and stuff, like, then I feel like that's really all I need to be doing. I feel like I'm really content. So I think 
I always need an outlet. And so the only idea of hell of that is just like, imagine I had a normal job and I had a Chinese every Friday night and I sort of just, I didn't, I wasn't um, letting this weird thing that's in me come out and like get it out and I mean, ideally monetize it, which is what I've ended up doing through comedy writing and stuff and doing uh, radio or whatever. But like, um, but otherwise, you know, I could do a boring job as long as I could come home and paint something or I don't know, write a sketch or do something. So, but some people don't have a creative urge. They've got, you know, they are, they're content. And so like, yeah, I think that's, they've probably cracked it really. It's just, I, yeah, I've just got that urge. That's the only thing I've never had a, I think that's a different thing when someone wants to be famous, like for the sake of it, you know, like it's, I think it's weird, but then our society basically applauds that so much. You think of like reality TV, like TOWIE or fucking Love Island or whatever. And it's like, you know, and I'll watch those shows because they're on a lot in my house. Uh, I don't put them on, but I watch them. Um, but like that's there's a whole generation or two generations now of people thinking that is a shortcut to some sort of happiness and status where you get free stuff and you're you know you've got your own makeup line and all that stuff and it's seen as like the ultimate career path, which is fucking mental because it's like, well, what are you creating? Like, what are you like, Gemma Collins? What is that? I know. I've, I've spoken about this quite a lot, and you see the, the amount of people that say, "I wish I would never, I'd never get on that show." Other people who have sadly have taken their lives or have come close to it. And I think the conclusion that I've drawn is that if you have that, you know, if you just burst onto the scene and you're famous because you just happen to be in people's minds and you were on TV, then it's not going to last because if you're no longer on TV and it's sort of, you know, that analogy about the bird that doesn't fear the branch breaking because it can fly away on its own. It's like you are that bird yeah. without wings and as that branch snaps, you're going down with it. And that, you know, then what happens? Um, and I'm not saying yeah. that everybody has also, to be this genius, but you need to have something. Yeah. You've got to have something. I was just like the Kardashians, they're quite funny and they're quite good at what they do. It's not, they're not, I can see their value in to some extent, but like they have no talent to speak of, but they, they are, you know, the sort of pinnacle of that sort of reality TV in that they are quite funny and they are, it is quite um, uh, successful. It's like, but then it's the things that are like 10 steps lower than the Kardashians. It's like the yeah. Towie spin-off people that I just think, well, what is this shit? But then fair play to them. If they're filling their boots, there's a saying, not saying there's a thing I read once. I can't remember who it was, but it's like, it's not Oliver Cromwell, but it's someone like that back in the day. And when he took the podium after whatever war or whatever, and the crowd were all cheering and everyone was cheering so much noise. And someone, one of his advisors said to him, this must, you must feel pretty good with this reaction. And he said, they cheer just as loudly to see me hanged. And it's so true in the sense that yeah. it's like, yeah, they're cheering because you're there. And then if if they went, you know, like it's a cruel and fickle sort of adoration because it's like when Gemma Collins, I don't know why I keep talking about her, but when she fell through that stage, yeah. people, do you know what I mean? Like nobody went, oh, fuck, poor Gemma Collins. It was like, ha, ha, ha. It's like you've basically put yourself up there to be – loved and hated in equal measure and really when they're done with you you i don't know it's like it's pretty pretty empty life but then 
her um, her comeback to that would probably be, well, look how much money I've got. I didn't even, I don't know. She, I doubt she like got a degree or anything. So she probably like left school. Did I don't know? <laughs> I'm trying to guess what Gemma Collins' A levels were like, but if she ever did them, but like I doubt she is massively um, well. You know, like hang on a minute, my wife's asking me something. Um, I doubt she was particularly destined to be, you know, successful in any other way. So, like, fair play to her. Some of that stuff, you go, like, how how stupid are those people? Because Mark Wright has got. I mean, he's got a bit of now, hasn't he? But like, he's doing, you know, really well. He's got a career in America and stuff like that. Obviously, he's really handsome, so that helps. But like, you know, fair play to him. But um, if you're doing it, also, he, Mark Rye actually seems like he's quite together and knows, you know, he's quite smart and whatever. And like, and Gemma Collins is probably playing a character and she knows what she's doing and how, you know, she knows how the cookie crumbles and stuff. So they're probably bad examples. But yeah, it's the people who go on Love Island and. Yeah, that that is like the, seen as the fast passport, isn't it, to that life? I mean, Mark Wright is somebody that I'd actually love to interview because he has capitalised on the opportunity that was afforded. And I think he only actually spent a couple of years or maybe a few seasons in Tui and then he fucked off to I'm a Celebrity. Yeah. And that, that was yeah. like nine, 10 years ago and you look at him now, very yeah, well established. And- I think Tower used to pay him like 100 quid a day or not even that, 70 quid a day or something. Because... They're, ma- the they're, they're making you famous, yeah. So, like, yeah. you're going to take that. But then if you stick around and you do 10 series, you'll probably up, get up to a bit more money a day. But, like, they're really hard to hang on to them once they've got their own profile. Aren't they? But, like, I don't know, that whole world of celebrity, like, it I'm probably is, yes. It's like, I don't know, maybe, like, this whole experience, coronavirus thing, just to bring it back to the thing we're not going to talk about, Maybe that will have an effect on that sort of thing because people will think, like, the, the vacuous pointlessness of all that stuff. Do, should you know? Do, will we all just go? Oh, the fuck were we thinking about that? Like, so culturally, I'd hope that culturally and socially we would realise that these things that are superfluous and we can kind of expel them or consign them to the history books. But that remains to be seen. As we have kept so much of your time, for which I am grateful, but. I need you please to recount the story about um, Morrissey that you that you told. Oh right, yeah, yeah. Can you tell that in your own words, please? Because I, I was absolutely fucking pissing myself laughing at this. Okay, so um, Russell Brand's got a cat that he's had for <laughs> I think fourteen years, I'd say, and it recently died, and the cat was called Morrissey, and. Um, he, I mean, he loved that cat. And, they, you know, Morrissey, I think Morrissey moved to America with him. Like he'd been through the whole, you know, Morrissey literally went from Belsize Park to Hollywood and was in Hollywood as a Hollywood cat and then moved back to England. Like, so he's been like his sidekick for a long time. But then sadly, last week, Morrissey died. And so Russell was like, it did some uh, social media posts about it and stuff. And so I was quite, I was like, oh, you know, text him. Then I thought it would be quite funny to text Noel Gallagher and say, fucking hell, mate, Morrissey's dead. (laughs) Just, you know, just to see what would happen. So I, so Noel called me straight back and was like, like, fucking hell, mate, is that true? Is that right? Fucking hell, is he dead? I went, yeah, yeah, he died yesterday. 
No, sorry, he died this morning. Like, fucking hell, mate. Morris is dead. And I went, yeah, yeah, yeah. Russell's cat. Morris is dead. He went, fuck it. Honestly, he was so angry. It wasn't like, ha, 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 you twat. He went, yeah. you fucking cunt, you wanker. You fucking, you fucking cunt. You fucking wanker. <laughs> oh, you fucking prick. You bellend. And she then hung up. And then... <laughs> That two seconds later, text me a torrent of abuse. You fucking wank. I'm a fucking cunt. Like that. And then I think I left it about five minutes and then I texted him back and went, fucking hell, mate. That's a, that's a bit offensive on the day that Russell's cats died. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he's, like, he's fine about it. I spoke, I spoke to him on my latest podcast about that and he, he was laughing about it. But you could tell it like, because I think, like he said, I'm often someone who, I don't know, because I'm like, I don't know how I find these things out quicker, but he only reads the paper in the morning. I don't think he's on his phone reading the news. So if I text him something like, oh, fucking hell, you heard about Prince or whatever, generally, that's the first time he's heard it. Oh, well, what's happened? He's not dead. Is it? You know, so he really believed it. And so in his head, and he said he'd been listening to the Smiths a lot, so he went on a journey in his head, which was obviously, fuck, like, you know, yeah. one of his heroes, musical heroes had died. And like, so, and also because also of coronavirus, I suppose he presumed it was to do with that or whatever. So um, I wouldn't say the joke backfired. I think it sort of worked in the end. And then I, I was racking my brains for other people with, with pets with the <laughs> same names because I was thinking oh, I'd love to just leave it a day and then go, Macca's dead or something. If I, uh, I'll adopt an animal that doesn't have long left and we'll, we can agree on the name of someone who's probably going to die soon, like we call him Prince Philip or something. And then if my dog dies, you can tell everybody. My dog will probably die before Prince Philip dies anyway. That guy's fucking indestructible. God, yeah, he's, I don't know, is it the transfusions of young people's blood? Going. <laughs> yeah, the satanic rituals, whatever it is, it, it's something up. going on, isn't there? Um, well, we've been talking for nearly two hours. This is longer than my epic podcast with Noel. I know. I'll cut a wee bit down. I'll cut. I'll cut some of it out. Probably the bit where I was getting dead angry at the government because we don't need any more of that negativity. But we we do need to talk about it as well. Um, well, I suppose yeah, we'll, no, that is... we'll we'll round up by saying, listen to Matt Morgan's funny how and watch Mister Winner. Is there anything else that you need to? I love, I love uh, hearing it in your accent, Mister Winner. Why don't you? Because I don't a... obviously because no, I don't think I have an accent. But obviously, to you, you think I sound like some sort of like stoned Cockney. But like, Mister yeah. um, Winner and Mr. funny who? How'd you say it? Funny, funny how? Funny how? Do, Do you know what? I, I would enjoy Matt Morgan's funny how I've been asked a couple of times if I'm going to be on it, so the fans have asked now. So when you run out of people, oh yeah, yeah, come on, mate, yeah, yeah. Um, even when you say my name, it sounds nice, Matt Morgan. <laughs> Matt Morgan, sounds better. Matt Morgan, yeah. Matt Morgan. Right, well, I'm sure your fans will have enjoyed. Thank you this. for having me on this. I Thanks. thought I was part of a medley of different guests. Uh, uh, yeah, episodes over a period of time. Ah, uh, right, I get it. Oh, I get it. So I didn't realise we were doing a whole episode, but that's fine. So I've enjoyed having the chat. Yeah, you've been hard to pin down these last couple of weeks, and I fucking know you've not been anywhere. You can't leave your house, so don't, don't do it. I know. So, but, you know, I have, I have to go in the garden sometimes. Sometimes I go to the garage. 
Sometimes I might, I might lose a flip flop, and that takes me all over the house. <laughs> I kept, I kept finding, I, I kept finding, I thought I was going mad. One fucking shoe by the door where it should be, and the other one nowhere to be found. And then I kept finding them in the kitchen, like around the back of the dining table. So I was like, "What the fuck?" Like someone in my house, out of my wife and my two children, is trying to make me like go mad. And then, um, then one morning I saw, uh, my daughter had seen a bug, a little silverfish or a woodlouse, like the two plague our kitchen for some reason. And, um, so she went to the door, got my flip flop, came in, hit it, and then left the flip flop where she'd hit it. So I realized, and that's what keeps happening. Cause it, happen- it was just happening just enough to drive me slowly mad. But only when I witnessed it, did I realize. I wasn't going mad. I saw someone said my shoes must think that I've died. There's just nothing. Oh, been- I saw that. Yeah, so true. <laughs> it's just been left. I fucking I have worn gym gear for a month. Yeah, I, I put gym gear on in the morning. I just I'm very comfortable wearing like shorts, but with a hoodie. That's my ideal <laughs> outfit. You've got the freedom of shorts, but you've got the warmth of a hoodie. I'm just going to turn up to meetings just dressed the way I've been. This this is my life now. This is how it's going to be. Hello. Well, have you seen the pictures of like, I saw pictures of, uh, oh God, what's his name? He's a rapper bloke. Um, oh fuck. I can't remember his name because I'm so not into that shit, but he's a DJ. DJ Khaled. Is he a rapper? Oh, fuck no. I don't even know. I just know he goes DJ Khaled at the start of his music, but I don't know anything else about him. Uh, well, he looks fucked because like he's got that you know when they do like a really good fade in the hair and he's got his beard it's just like it looks almost airbrushed on he looks like he's aged 40 years in about two months Puff Daddy I saw a picture of him he's because they're not because the thing is they can't groom properly they can't dye their hair because they get it done properly yeah so Puff Daddy looks fucked DJ sorry Puff Daddy looks fucked DJ Khaled looks fucked um who else did I see Oh God, jo- Johnny Knoxville. I follow him on Instagram. He's not dying his hair or anything. He looks about fifty-six. That's so funny. He's I'm just so like grey and fucked up. But like, I, I'm not saying I look good. I shaved my head because I wanted a mohawk and it went wrong. So then I ended up just shaving my head. Now that's growing out, so you can see like, you know, like a grown-out skinhead where mm. the the sides are all right. If you sleep on one side, you've got a fuzzy sticking out bit, and yeah. my beard is just. Gone like that. Like, look at that. I mean, like, I was, the listeners can't see it, but look at you. You look like a fucking male model all the time. Mate, I know, but I look like I'm wearing a swimming cap. Like, my hair is just all becoming like the one length. I look like I'm wearing a, like I'm a Russian hat. You know those hats that the Russians yeah. wear? My hair's like growing yeah, out. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Absolutely refused. Anyway, just waiting. So, Matt, thanks again, as always, for being so generous with your time. That's right, mate. I've enjoyed it. And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. And I'll be back again soon with another episode of Blethered on the Big Light. Cheers. Blethered was written, recorded and produced by Sean McDonald in association with The Big Light. Music and post-production by Brian McAlpine. And for more information, go to thebiglight.com. From the Big Light Studio.